0: with the Bible. If, you, if there's someone next to you that is, get the passage for them. We're going to have to look at it. We have to roll up our sleeves in this passage. Uh, the Bible comes in many different buckets, so the water of the Word is carried in many different buckets. When we were in Jesus I Never Knew, we were in narrative and story, and so it was, it was easy to listen because we all love stories. Stories are gripping. Stories are captivating. Stories grab your imagination. Well, Paul is taking us through logic And so we are going to look at main ideas and supporting ideas, and our prayer is that this logic goes on fire, okay? So God has logic, and God has propositions, because He wants to make clear things that need to be clear, things that might be a little more difficult and harder for us. Not that they're hard to understand, they're hard, they're difficult to deal with, and that's what we're dealing with today. So I want to be up front with you. What we're about to look at is rated R got to have an adult because it's going to be tough stuff, all right? I don't mean in a sexual or profane way, but in a theological way, it's rated R. Uh, I see that many of you have returned after last week, so I want to commend you. You have joined the Intrepid Club. You are the brave. You are the bold. Uh, Last week, we were hit by the Mack truck of Romans 9, weren't we? (laughs) Did you survive the impact? I see some of you are still shaking. You've got PTSD of Romans 9, right? Um, here's the deal. While we were flattened by Romans 9 last week and laying on the ground, did you notice, though, there was a bunch of fruit laying around? Did you grab some? You're like, oh, man, look at... Did you see this? <laughs> did you see the... Uh, Jesus or Paul was wanting to be accursed in the place of others? Did you see that in those first couple of verses? Did you see how... Paul is saying, curse me instead, this deep, deep waters of the love of God, these deep waters of substitutionary love for messed up people. Did you see that? Credible fruit. Did you pick up the big idea of Romans 9? Not beat up Arminians and not predestination predators. And not uh, Reformed, do you, remember the, do you remember back in Jesus, I never knew there was a word there that someone made up, this, this researcher, I think he was from Michigan, sociologist, he wrote this incredible art, article called Jerkitude, and remember I said how envious and jealous I was, I did not make up that word? Well, here it is. Is the big idea Reformed Jerkitude of Romans 9? No, the big idea is what? Did you pick up this fruit? Can God's word fail? <laughs> Can... Good news, not good advice, fail in your life. Can a righteousness received instead of a righteousness achieved fail? Can these words, it is finished, not fight for your lives? Can that fail? Can what Jesus has done, not what you do and I do, fail? Did you pick up the fruit of the answer that was given in the text? No, God's word never fails. Why? Because of electing grace. Electifying, electing grace. Well, today we're gonna do we're gonna look at two major objections to electing grace. Uh, so we're in for some more fun this morning. Okay? So please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're gonna read. Romans 9:14 through 29.
1: A reading from Romans 9:14 through 29. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy." and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to men then, Why does he still find fault? For who can rest, resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the mo- its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonored use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews, only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. (coughs) And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Please be seated. So, God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you help us think through this passage? Would you give clarity to the mind, realness to the heart? Would you turn uh, the wonder uh, of electing grace, uh, make it electrifying to us? We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so what is electing grace? Do you remember? All right, the answer according to Romans 9. Here it is. God is the author of our salvation. God is the author of our salvation. That's the whole dominating big idea of Romans 9. We could say it this way. God being the author of our salvation is a one-way love. It's a one-way love because it depends on God's character and his performance, not your character and our performance. I mean, look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born, no character, no performance, had done nothing either good or bad. That's what it's based on. It's a one-way love because it preserves and it empowers and it pushes deep into our bones good news, not good advice. A righteousness received, not a righteousness achieved. A grace salvation, not a self-salvation. Do you see that? Verse 11, in order that the purpose of election, what's the purpose? It's to continue. This purpose is to be driven into your bones, clear to your head, real to your heart. Here it is, not because of works. But because of him who calls, it's a one-way love because it preserves, empowers, and pushes deep into our bones a substitutionary love. Verse three: For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Paul wished it. Jesus did it. Jesus was accursed for you. Jesus was cut off for you. Jesus took your place and my place. And when we get that, we sing, Jesus loves me. This I know. When one-way love goes deep into our bones, we become the most, the most loved and accepted people on the planet. The most secure The most bold and also the most deeply loving people on the planet. Paul, it's you or them. Take them, Lord. Take. Substitutionary love gets so deep into your bones that you become the most deeply loving people on the planet. We do things like, may I decrease so she increases. May I be exhausted and spent so he flourishes. May I bend so they can be lifted up. Do you see how this works? That's substitutionary love. And so, if we don't get this substitute, if we don't get Electrifying or electric or electing grace, if electing grace does not electrify us, if it doesn't functionally become true of us, if we don't experience it, you know what we end up doing? If we like it, if we agree with it, but it doesn't move into your functional experience, if it doesn't become electrifying to us, then we become reformed assassins. A.W. Boehm, a London leader of the Gospel Renewal Movement in the 1700s, in the in Great Britain, he said that what was characterizing the church at the time was a lively, was not that they had a lively faith in doctrine. In other words, they had a dead faith in doctrine. They weren't electrified by doctrine. They had the doctrine. They had the ascent. They had the creeds, but it didn't make a difference in their life, meaning it wasn't radically enlightening their minds and infusing their hearts and enlivening their hearts and giving heat to their hearts, light to the mind, heat to the heart. That wasn't happening. So he wrote, this is what it was like at those, di- those times. Faith that it is now in vogue signifies no more than a stiff adherence to a certain sect or denomination of men. And a zealous defense of such particular tenets as have been received and approved by that party. All the ingredients of such faith are nothing but human education, custom, tradition, persuasion, conversation, and the like. And the zeal that goes with it, oh man, it's just the product of self-love and corrupt reason. The two great framers of sex and party notions. He says, you just become a bunch of jerks with doctrine. Then you got Richard Loveless, who's a historian and theologian of gospel renewals, and he writes this, he says, listen, all good thinking that comes about, all good education that comes about, all good relational works that come about, families, spouses, uh, businesses, careers, homes, all good social action, all good community works, all good building of structures of the kingdom of God. He says, all that stuff is accomplished. All that stuff is produced only, quote, through the transformation of our experience. Quote, the instruments through which God works in the church are human beings. If our hearts and minds are not properly transformed, we are like musicians playing untuned instruments or engineers working with broken and ill-programmed computers. Truly experiencing (laughs) electing grace is a big deal. If you don't, if I don't, we don't just go anywhere. We go in two directions. One, we start depending on our works. We have doctrines of salvation that are completely riddled with works. And then functionally, we live our life like we're trying to save ourselves. But if we don't go in that direction, then we go in the other direction, and we go into the reformed assassin direction, and we have possibly a right understanding of a doctrine of salvation but we do so with this creepy, weird superiority and condescension and this mean-spiritedness. We just love to blog and make posts on social media and criticize and critique and beat up (laughs) Armenians. Oh, my word. Which, ironically, y'all, you know what happens? We turn into functional salvation-by-works proponents. Because what we're really finding our justification in is being right. Theological righteousness. And we treat people accordingly. Hey, man, we're on the same team. I love you. Oh, you're not on my team. Pow. Right? So here we are now. At this point in Romans, we're going to look at two objections to electrifying electing grace, right? And the goal is, while we look at the objections, is that the doctrine of election actually becomes good news to you and me, and keeps us away and takes us away from salvation by works, and keeps us from being reformed jerks, okay? All right, let's look at objection number one. It's found in verses 14 through 18. Objection number two is going to be 19 through 24. So objection number one is found in verse 14. You're going to have to have a Bible open. You're going to have to have your electronic device on. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The gist is this. If God is the author of our salvation, and yet he doesn't save everyone, isn't God unjust? In other words, that's just not fair. Right? Now watch Paul's carefully nuanced first answer to this objection. Here it is. You ready? No, it's not. Do you see that? Look at verse 14. By no means. And he has an exclamation point at the end of it, right? He's saying, it's not unfair. By no means is that unfair. Why isn't it unfair, though? He wants you and I to know why. Why is it not unjust? If if God is the author of your salvation, the author of everyone's salvation, and yet he doesn't save everyone, how come that's not unfair? How can that not be unjust? It feels like it, doesn't it? That's emotionally difficult for me. Is it for you? Look at verse 15. For, what Paul is saying by saying for, is here's my answer to that. He he, who is he, God, and then says to Moses, and now Paul is using the great leader of Israel to answer the objection. Here it is. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul's answer is this. Salvation is about mercy. Condemnation is about justice. Fairness. So let's look at mercy, shall we? What's the DNA of mercy? If you take mercy, if we were all doctors, students, or pre-med, whatever, I never was pre-med, never smart enough, but I can pretend. If we put mercy on this table and we cut it open and we pull out its heart, what's the heart of mercy? What's the DNA of mercy? Do you know what it is? Not getting justice. Not getting fairness not getting what we deserve, not getting what we earn, not getting what we're owed, not getting the payment of our works, which Paul says, listen, the wages, the payment, the payment of our sin is death. Remember that? He says that in Romans 6. And death is decreation. Death is the great chaotic deep death is being accursed and cut off from God and all creation. And mercy is not getting that. Mercy is not getting what we want. You remember what we want? We want to be our own Savior. We want to be our own Lord. And all the devastating consequences of us trying to take God's place and bear the weight of being God in our life and other people's lives Mercy says, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to give you death. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you life. Mercy is precisely about not getting what is just and fair. James Kennedy, he's now deceased, but he was a famous pastor of a church called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He says it this way. Now, he uses himself personally. I'm putting you in the position. So he says, I have five friends. I'm saying you have five friends, okay? You have five friends that are planning on robbing a bank, and they're friends of yours. So my first thought right off the bat is, you probably should pick better friends. But besides the point, you find out. You go and you plead with them, and you beg them, and you try to persuade them, and you say, don't do this. But they they won't listen. They They push you out of the way. And while they're going out the door, man, you tackle one of your friends and you wrestle him to the ground. But the others, they keep going. They rob the bank. They kill a guard. They're captured, convicted, and sentenced to death. But that friend of yours that you tackled, he's free. Kennedy asks, quote, whose fault was it that the other men died? Now, this other man who is walking around free, can he say now, because my heart is so good, I am a free man. The only reason that he is free is because of you, because you restrained him. So those of us, so those who are going to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who are going to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. This is how we see that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. That's mercy. Now let's put justice on the table and let's cut open justice and let's rip out its heart and let's look at it. What is justice? What is fairness, Paul says? No one is saved. Condemnation. Everyone perishes. Everyone pays the wages for their own sin. This is why Paul moves to Israel's greatest enemy, Pharaoh, in verse 17. This is why. Look at verse 17. Four, four, I'm continuing to answer, is God unjust? Is God unfair? When he's the author of our salvation, that he doesn't save everyone. So he's continuing that theme, all right? right. Four. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy... He, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Pharaoh enslaved a whole nation. <coughs> Pharaoh tried to systematically murder every male Jewish child. Today we call that infanticide. Today we call that wholesale slaughter of a people genocide. So you and I are, should be thinking of things like the Holocaust, the slaughter of six million Jews under Nazi Germany. We should be thinking things like Cambodia in 1975 or two million... Cambodians are slaughtered in the killing fields. We should be thinking Rwanda in 1990, which some 800,000 people were hacked to death in just a hundred days, setting a, a notorious, infamous New world record, the greatest, quickest killing spree in all of human history. We should be thinking of Bosnia, '95, Darfur in 2003. This is what we should be thinking of. Pharaoh. Paul is using Pharaoh to say, "We are the authors of sin and evil." We are the authors of our condemnation. But don't miss this. This is just baffling. God is so great, he overrides our authorship of sin, evil, and condemnation. He overrides it. He overmasters it. He overcontrols it. He ultimately wins. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What's that name? Well, the context is this. The context is Moses and Exodus. The context is, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. The context is, in that time, Moses cries out to God, and he says, Oh, Oh God, show me your glory. Who are you? What's, the core, what's your core character? Who am I supposed to trust? Who am I supposed to tell these people you are? When people say, your God is sent you, who are you? Who do I tell them? Show me your glory. And God says, okay, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft, and I'm going to cause my name to pass by you. All my name. And here's my name. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. My name is mercy. My core character is mercy, and my mercy is my name, and it always wins. Even amidst all yours and Pharaoh's and the whole fallen world's authorship of sin and evil and condemnation. So to sum up Paul's answer to the first objection of it's not fair, it's not fair for God to be the author of salvation and not save everyone, Paul says, ah, that's a contradictory statement. That's a contradictory question. Mercy is about not getting what is fair. Condemnation is. Do you see that? That's how Paul answers that question. You need to see that. So Paul's ultimate answer, no matter what happens, if you get this, you get Romans 9 you got electing grace, right? That God is the author of our salvation. Paul's number one answer to all objections in Romans 9, which will help you in 10 and help you in 11, and thank God we'll be out of these three chapters and into 12 through 16, where we could talk about things like the Christian life and being patient and kind and all pretend we are. We can do that. I'm excited about that. Here is the ultimate answer to the objections of Romans 9. You ready? God is the author of our salvation. We are the authors of our condemnation, period. Two asymmetric ideas that are always held together, no matter what. If you lose any of these, you move into the land of weirdness. You become a hyper-Calvinist. You say stupid things like, God is the author of our salvation and he's the author of our condemnation. Bull. Absolute bull. And then we go to the other side if we don't keep these two together. God is the, I am the author, salvation by works. I am the author of my salvation. I am the author of my condemnation. It all depends on me. And you shred your soul to the ground. Because you can't live on that octane very long. All the willing, all the striving, all the running, all the pleasing, all the proving, all the perfecting, all the performing will ruin your soul. Some of you are thinking, because I know you, not so fast, Jeff. Right? I mean, there's that little bit. What about that little bit, you know, that part where he says he hardens whomever he wills in verse 18? You just nicely skipped over that one, Pastor. This leads us to our second objection, which is found in verses 19 through 24. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? (laughs) Here's the gist. If God is so sovereign that he's sovereign over everything, like our authorship of sin and evil and condemnation, then isn't he the author of everything? Is he? In other words, you and I are just puppets. Divinely manipulated puppets. We are not image bearers in any sort of meaningful engagement with life. Your career is not meaningful. Your relationships aren't meaningful. Marriages aren't meaningful. Parenting isn't meaningful. It's all determinism. It's all fate. It's all back to the Greek gods or it's now back to the religious god of supposedly that's what this view is. So first, I want you to remember that here's the first response to that, okay? And this is very, very important. What Paul says in verses 14 through 18, do not go away. God is the author of our salvation. We are the authors of our condemnation. That doesn't go away. The issue now is, in light of God's sovereignty, how is that so? How are we to understand We are the authors of our sin and our evil and our condemnation given that God is sovereign. How are we supposed to understand that? So now, man, we are wading in the deep, deep waters. We are moving into like the crux of this text. We are moving into the inner sanctums of electing grace. We are moving into things that are difficult but clear. Are you ready? And then we're done. So you've got to think hard with me for a couple more minutes, and then we're done, and then let's go out to eat and try to forget everything that just happened. <laughs> I'm going to call this the sovereignty knot. It's a knot. Now, when you tease a knot, what do you got to do? you got to find a loose string. So we're going to find two loose strings to tug on to tease this knot out. It's the sovereignty knot. Here's the first tug. Be careful. Be careful not to take God's place as Lord, Savior, and Judge when wrestling with life. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now this is not, do not pour out your suffering. Do not pour out your pain. Do not pour out your confusion. Do not rail against God. Don't, Don't tell him you're angry because he just can't handle it, quite frankly. He's too sensitive. That's not what this means. What this means is humility. (coughs) This means God alone is Lord, Savior, and Judge. So go to Him as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Trust Him as Savior, Lord, and Judge. Be careful. Fight against thinking you know better than Him. If you and I start thinking, well, I know better. I understand more. We just take God's place. We dethrone him. And man, that is a that's a that's that's an even weirder place to be. I mean, there's all kinds of mental illnesses for that, right? Also, we fight against feeling that we're more merciful than God. Do you see that? Because through this whole thing, you're gonna be thinking, well, this way's better. And you're saying, and I'm saying to myself, we feel like we're more merciful than he is when God has just shown us that the core character of who he is, is mercy. So be careful. Don't don't think you're more merciful than God. You see that? The other is don't think. We got to fight against. Be careful. Don't think we have more control than God. You know that God, you're as sovereign as I let you Be careful, Paul is saying. Not don't be confused. Not God can't handle your anger and your frustrations and your pain, and he can't handle you even asking these questions because he surely can. That's not the point. The point is don't take his place. Don't judge the judge. Don't try to be a greater Savior than the Savior. See how that works? Second tug on the sovereignty knot is, He's going to explain what hardening means in verse 18. <laughs> He's going to explain how God is sovereign over our authorship of sin, evil, and condemnation. And he begins by using the image of what? A potter in the clay. Now, I read this, and I, was, I just started jumping for joy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the key observation here. And if you don't get this observation, if you miss this point, you go into the land of weirdness, and you'll think... You have biblical support to do it. Here's the point. This is not the potter at creation. This is not the potter coming up, and this is creation out of ex nihilo. God forms something out of nothing. No, what's what's happening here? The lump of clay is already there. The potter is taking a fallen, evil, self-absorbed, seeking to be its own savior lump of clay and molding it. See how that works? Jones says it this way, the potter does not create the clay. It is there in front of him on the bench, and he's now going to do something with it. So the apostle here is not dealing with God's purpose in the original creation of humanity. God does not form one for evil or form one for good. I'll let him say it. This is an account of what God does with fallen humanity. Many think God deliberately made some people that they might go to hell. This is hyper-Calvinism. And he says, which is, he's called the greatest Puritan, the last of the greatest Puritan preachers. This is a lie. It's bull. It's not taught anywhere in the scripture. God created all things good. No one has been forced to sin. This is a picture of what God does with fallen humanity so what does it specifically mean first he gives us the image now he's going to give you the the real tight explanation it's going to be in verse 23 you're going to have to follow with me very closely here in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory who prepares us for glory what's it say god prepares us for glory what does that mean god's the author of our salvation good everyone got that not if you got it. Excellent. Now let's look at the second part, or the first part of verse 23. This is the other side. "To show his wrath to make known his power, he has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Notice, evil people are not made evil here. We're endured with great patience. Do you see that? Even here, we don't get what we deserve. We get God's patience. Now, who prepares them for destruction? Who prepares us for destruction in this passage? Do you see a he? Do you see God? No. It just is left off. Here's what God is saying about vessels of wrath. They are prepared for destruction. What does that mean? We are the authors of our own condemnation. I know you're not fully convinced, so I'm going to prove it even more. The verbal form for he prepared for glory... Do you see that? He prepared for glory. See the verbal form? Prepared. This is active voice. I'm really getting geeky on you, but I have to. To make you geeks and to help you out theologically. The active, ver- the active voice is saying the subject acts upon something else. God prepares us for glory. That's the point of the active voice. God does it. But interestingly, when we go to prepare for destruction, guess which verbal form it is? Middle voice. Reflexive. We prepare ourselves for destruction. So what does God's hardening mean? The answer is very, very clear. You already know what it means. He already told us in Romans 1. He lets us go. He gives us what we want. He gives us our lusts, verse 24, chapter 1. He hands us over to our mega, epi, cravings, longings, passions, desires of what we want to be and what we want to do. And his hardening is, okay, I leave you to that. I leave you to yourself. God hardening someone does not mean God creating the hardness. God hardening someone means God allowing self-hardness. God is the author of our salvation. We are the authors of our condemnation. That is as far as we can go. Otherwise, you are the, for- you are the fourth person in the Trinity, and God's going to say it's too crowded in here. Okay. All right. A Presbyterian missionary to prostitutes in Korea ran into some fundamental problems trying to share the gospel with them. These prostitutes could not accept God um, God connecting to them with grace. They could not accept that He extended grace to them. They were their shame and their self-loathing was too great to be able to see God's love and His grace. So this missionary came up with a radical idea. You know what he said? I'm going to share election with them. Now, he knows that in our Western democratic egalitarian culture, the idea of electing grace is not popular, and it's not a fun doctrine for us. I mean, we don't like the parts of the Bible that talk about God being sovereign. We're Americans, for crying out loud. We rejected all that and formed America, right? Right? We don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like to be controlled. We don't like sovereignty. It's in our DNA, is it not? So Western people, egalitarian people, this doctrine is hard emotionally because our own culture joins partners with our own nature to resist it. But in a different culture, it's a little different. They don't have the same egalitarian Western democratic ideas in the Asian culture. So he told these women, he says this, God is king, kings rule. That's just what they do. And this great king chose to save sinners by his royal will and his royal power and his royal mercy, not by the quality of your life or pedigree or virtue or what you do or don't do, girls. that made sense to them. He said, quote, people were saved not because of their pedigree or virtue or effort, but because of the will of God, and these prostitutes finally got grace.